Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. I'm Eric Wolf, and I'll be your host today for episode 18 of Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today, we'll be speaking with Michelle Morris. Michelle Morris is an award-winning cookbook author and freelance food writer. As a recipe developer and food photographer, she has worked with clients like Nyman Ranch and Prairie Grove Farms. She publishes two popular blogs, a food blog with over 1,000 recipes, and a travel blog featuring over 150 locations around the world with a heavy emphasis on the food and wine. Both blogs feature Michelle's photography. Although she only recently discovered her Italian roots, Italy holds a special place in Michelle's heart. She traveled to Rome nearly 20 times and leads culinary tours in Southern Italy. When home in Denver, Michelle volunteers extensively in her community. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Michelle, you came to us through kind of an interesting circumstance. When we were first talking, you, you were mentioned an event that happened in Madrid that kind of changed your life and changed your thinking on things. Would you mind sharing with our mm-hmm. audience today? I'd be happy to. Um, in October of 2016, my husband and I took off for Madrid, Spain for vacation with friends. And when we landed in the baggage claim area of the airport, he collapsed from what I learned was a massive brain hemorrhage from a, a ruptured aneurysm. I spent uh, two months in Spain with him while he was in the neurointensive care in a hospital there in a coma. I eventually flew him home on an air ambulance and I had to negotiate to get him home. He continued to be hospitalized for the next four months, and sadly, in April of 2017, he passed away. It was uh, an interesting learning experience beyond just the tragedy and obviously the grief and loss that it comes with losing your spouse, but having it happen in a foreign city, what I learned out of that, and what happened after that really has been life-changing for me. It's a, a terrible tragedy, to be sure, to lose a loved one. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like in Madrid during that time when your husband was in the hospital? I think you had mentioned something about the food and the people that, I think it, it says something about the Madrid food culture. A lot of people assumed that the time that I was in Madrid, those two months, was simply horrible. And although it was very scary and sad, the Madrid people really embraced me, and I found a lot of comfort in both the people and the food of Madrid. When you're going through something like that, food can be very comforting, and that's what I found. Because of the way the hospital system is structured in Spain, you're not allowed to sit in the hospital all day with your loved one like you are in the United States. So I had a lot of time on my hands. I had friends who came and stayed with me and friends that I made in Spain who took me out to eat, and it was a little respite from the tragedy of the day. And I'll be returning to Madrid actually in April of this year on a a little pilgrimage of sorts and look forward to reuniting with those people and re-experiencing those foods again. That's such a wonderful silver lining to the horrific experience that you must have had, Michelle. Would you mind sharing with us how you got into food in the first place? I've always cooked since I was a little kid. I loved being in the kitchen. I don't really remember learning cooking, but my mother must have taught me how to cook for sure. 
when I was 14 for her 40th birthday party, I did a surprise Chinese meal from scratch for her. So clearly I knew how to cook at a very young age. And when I was, uh, you know, about 25 years into a tech career, I really had had enough of the tech career and wanted to shift my focus into something in the food and wine world. So in 2006, I launched a business to teach private cooking lessons and to lead uh, cooking dinner parties for both kids and adults. My foray into tourism and traveling around food came sort of by accident. I went to a cooking school in France where I met a man who ran a cooking school in Italy and invited me to bring some clients down there. And once I did that, once I was hooked and realized I needed to keep teaching people there every year. Isn't it funny how life is kind of a series of events? One thing leads to another, to another. And, and before you know it, you are writing cookbooks and publishing blogs and leading tours. <laughs> You know, when I started my food business, I approached it very differently than my prior career in tech. In the career in tech, I was very driven to achieve the next promotion and climb the ladder and do what I needed to get to from point A to point B. But when I entered the world of food and wine as a business, I decided to just let it take me where it was going to take me. And it's amazing how one connection will lead to another opportunity that leads to another connection. I really didn't envision that I would do all the things I've done in the last 13 years, everything from food photography to cookbooks to recipe development to culinary tours. It's just expanded over the 13 years, I think partly because I let it. Would you be able to share with us a little bit about the culinary tours in Italy that you offer? So many people have been to what I call sort of the big touristy spots of Italy. They've been to Rome, Florence, Venice. They spend time in Tuscany. Everybody loves to go to Tuscany. Everybody loves to go to Venice. But I discovered a place in southern Italy in Puglia that most people at the time I started going there in 2008 hadn't heard much about. You'll see a lot written about Puglia now. I think certain chefs have brought that onto the radar of people that are traveling, but it's still largely undiscovered, I find. The other thing that I found about Southern Italy is it's really the heart of the Mediterranean diet down there. People like to think if they're in France and Italy eating anywhere, they're eating the Mediterranean diet, and that's really not true. Northern Italy and parts of France and, and Northern Europe, obviously, are very beet-centric and heavy sauces and things, but in Southern Italy, it's all about vegetables and whole grains and seafood and olive oil, tomatoes. And I just fell in love with it the first time I went there because I felt like it was such an authentic experience. It wasn't touristy whatsoever. And so I decided I wanted to introduce other people to that experience. And that's how I got started. That sounds fantastic, Michelle. Would you mind sharing some of the dishes that make up food in the Puglia region and how it might tie into their history and culture? The area of southern Italy uh, has always had a high level of poverty, dating way, way back when there were barons and people were working the land. And because they didn't have much food, they started scavenging for food. And they found things like wild greens, chicory, and began basing their diet on that because it was free that they could get food. Well, that remained in the cuisine of southern Italy. And so you'll find a lot of wild greens and whole grains and things like that built into the dishes. So let's start with the pasta. In northern Italy, pasta is often made with uh, soft white flour and eggs, so there's not as much nutritional value in that grain as it is in southern Italy, where it's made with hard durum wheat with the addition of barley flour added, so it's much more of a whole grain pasta, has a lot more fiber to it, it mm. keeps you fuller longer, and that really is a difference in the pastas north to south. I find it interesting, I have friends in the south who 
really have never heard of pasta made with eggs. And I have friends north of Rome who can't believe they don't put eggs in it in the South. <laughs> it reminds us that Italy is still quite regionalized in how they think about food. So that's the basis of the pasta dishes. Orchiette with uh, broccoli rabe or with uh, chicory or something is one of the most classic dishes. That's the little ear-shaped pasta in the South. Um, mm. Some of the other things you'll see down there are seafood-based. So a zuppa di pesce that is a big seafood soup that's based on all the things you find in the seas around that peninsula is very popular. It's really bordered on three sides by three different seas. So you have the Ionian Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Adriatic Sea. And the Ionian Sea happens to be a lot saltier, so you'll get these very salty, briny mussels from that region that are absolutely to die for. And those will be included in a big soup that's made with calamari and mussels and fish and shrimp and and, uh, you know, they'll drizzle massive amounts of extra virgin olive oil over the top and soak it up with bread. The vegetable side of things is largely based on what grows wild. There are things like wild greens. And the meat is very small in portion and tends to be what we would consider in the old days called barnyard animals. So something that could be kept small like chickens or rabbits or things that you could keep on your property. It's very warm down there, so there's not large livestock like cows and pigs raised in the region. Oh, you're making me so hungry. We love that different regions of Italy are now getting recognition through people like you. Have you seen a rise in tourism in Puglia of late? You know, that's always a blessing and a curse when one of your favorite spots gets discovered by the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in Lete, the, the central city in southern Puglia, just a few months ago, and I've never honestly seen it that crowded. It might have been that there was a holiday event going on, but honestly, I think it's just general increase in tourism. Also, Matera, which is in the Basilicata region, not far from Puglia, is the culture capital city of Europe for this year. And so I expected the tourism in southern Italy to be really, really busy this year. It's good for the people there who need the income, but there's always that risk of overrunning a place. It's a bit of a double-edged sword, really, because one of the best ways to experience and understand local cultures is through travel. But then when so many people are traveling and they get overrun, then the authenticity suffers and is threatened. Absolutely. I see that all the time. And, and I frankly, that's the problem I have with other places like Tuscany that have been so traveled by so many people that it, it almost becomes like a cartoonish experience of going there. It doesn't feel very authentic or natural because the culture has changed from what is their normal day-to-day -day culture into a culture of tourism to support all these people coming there. And so I hope that doesn't happen to Puglia because it's been beloved to me because of how authentic it's felt over the years. Well, the fact that many of the regions around the world are losing their food cultures is a huge concern of ours. And when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that it was a concern of yours as well. It's been a concern of mine for as long as I started traveling. And when I was in college and came out of college and started working, there wasn't this mad rush to travel the world before you started working like young people today do. And it's fabulous for them that they do that. But I, I went to work very quickly and then had a family after that. So didn't start traveling until I was in my late 30s, maybe. And my first trip was a business trip to Germany. And I can still taste the tomato soup I had at a restaurant there. And it was just so different than what I had tasted here. And to me, that's a lot of what travel is about for me, is experiencing that food and wine of those regions. I don't want to go to Italy and have a traditional New York strip steak. I can have that anytime I want in the U.S. 
but even with the guests who travel with me, who I think are enlightened about authentic travel, even some of them seek out more U.S.-based dishes instead of falling into the, the beauty of the food that's offered in those regions. You were talking a little bit about how Starbucks has now shown up in Italy. What, what do you think about that? I've been to Rome 20 times, and, and my travels through Italy probably changed the way I think about coffee. I used to be one of these people that had a pot of decaf on the counter for a week and didn't really care what I was drinking. But I'm kind of a coffee snob now because I've been drinking Italian coffee for the past 15 years. I don't know why we need a Starbucks in Italy because we have so much great coffee culture in Italy already. And ironically, the guy who started Starbucks said he was doing it um, to imitate what he had experienced in an Italian coffee shop and an Italian barista and stuff. But you and I know if you go into most Starbucks here in the United States, it doesn't really feel like an Italian coffee shop. It feels like a Starbucks in the U.S. I haven't had the chance to go to the new one in, I believe it's in Milan in northern Italy. I think it's probably going to be a lot different than U.S. ones. But I worry that all of a sudden Starbucks is going to pop up on every corner and nobody's going to go into the little local shops anymore. It's something that's great for the locals because the locals often look forward to the big international brands or something American or, or something French that comes in. But really, it's no reason to travel. Like you said, we have Starbucks everywhere. So why would we look for that in Italy when we travel there? You know, I experienced that once in uh, Shanghai in China. They're right in this beautiful old section of Shanghai. There was a McDonald's, and you could see all these women taking little kids in there. It was actually grandmothers taking their grandchildren into McDonald's. And I said, that's just so sad to me that they're, you know, they, they're taking their children into McDonald's, which isn't historically known to be the most nutritious place to feed your family. And I was told by our tour guide that in China, being able to afford McDonald's and to take your children into McDonald's was considered a sign of affluence. So those Western brands coming into cities and around the world and being introduced to those cultures mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. I just don't want us to lose the opportunity, us, anybody in the world, to be able to travel somewhere and experience what really is from and of that place. I hear you, Michelle. I remember being in Morocco and it's exactly what you said, you know, with big brands coming in, the locals go in once or twice because it is a status symbol and a sign of affluence to be able to, to, be able to afford McDonald's in some of these developing countries. However, having said that, what happens is that when tourists go to these countries, instead of taking the time to find a local place where they could find something they enjoy, it's just easy to say, hey, we know McDonald's, we know we'll get a quick meal, we know what we want and we'll go there it ends up having tourists rather than locals. And, and that's what, you know, takes away from traveling in that region and really taking the time to find a local place so that you can explore the region's food. Travel takes a sense of adventure, whether that sense of adventure is about just the travel itself or about the food. I remember being at the Beijing night market and wishing I had the guts to try something that they were selling in that night market because it was such unusual food to what I had ever seen or was accustomed to. But certainly traveling to some place like Italy or Europe, you know, other places in Europe, you don't have to be all that adventurous to try the local food. So I really encourage people to, as soon as people get there, I say, let's order what is of this city, of this region. And instead of asking if they have a California Chardonnay, let's get the Greco di Tufo. Let's, let's eat and drink of this region because that's why you're here to experience this place. 
Michelle, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about some of your, your writing and your cookbooks. You have a, a book, Poco a Poco, that deals with the tragedy that you experienced in Spain, but you've also written some books like Tasting Colorado and A Taste of Washington. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you developed a career path to focus on those particular types of books? When I started my food business, I quickly realized that it would help my cooking teacher business and help me get people to go to Italy and things like that if I had a blog. So I started a food blog very early on in my business and then a travel blog as well. And if you are going to blog, especially if you're in the food world, you better have good pictures because if, if your pictures are ugly, if you take flash pictures of your food, people aren't going to want to read your food blog. It's a very visual thing. So I had been blogging for a while. I'm a self-taught food photographer, something I'm very proud of because I can see where I've come over the years. And it was because of my food blog that I got an opportunity to do a cookbook. A publisher was looking for someone to do this book called Tasting Colorado. There had been a similar book done in Wyoming that was very successful. and They wanted to replicate that in Colorado. So they liked what they saw on my blog, asked me to do the cookbook. And then after I requested it, they actually hired me to do the photography as well. So the Colorado book features 120 recipes from all over the state. It's meant to be a culinary tourism kind of book. It's the best branches and B&Bs and restaurants and venues and things like that. And also iconic recipes and ingredients and attitudes about food. The Colorado Book has done very well. It's sold 11, 12,000 copies already. It won the Colorado Book Award. And because of the success of that book, they asked me to do another state. And that's how I ended up doing the Washington book. In both books, I curated all the recipes from the chefs and from the places, and then I tested those with home cooks to make sure that the recipes could be done by home cooks, scaled them for a family instead of a restaurant use, and then put it all together. Is there another book in your future? You know, cookbooks are fun to do. I love doing them, but it's hard to make money in cookbooks unless you're Ina Garten or somebody like that. So I don't think I will do more cookbooks unless they're charity kind of things like for my farm uh, CSA program to do a cookbook for them. I don't think I'll do more of those kind of books again. It's a far cry from corporate America, though. You, you talked about climbing the corporate ladder and, and giving up that lifestyle. And I think that is something that's so hard to do. I mean, you, you clearly found your calling, but so many of us are programmed from an early age that we have to do this. You have to go to college. You have to go to a four-year school. You have to get a degree. You have to get a corporate job. And really, those aren't, that's not the case anymore. You know, my daughter started out, she was very bright, very advanced in math, and she started out applying to college in an engineering program. She very quickly switched to the School of Business. Shortly after that, moved to the journalism school, got a PR advertising degree, and then went to culinary school and started work as a chef. I always joked with her that she just basically worked her way down the pay scale from engineer to business <laughs> to chef. <laughs> But what she really did is found what she's passionate about. And she worked as a chef for a number of years. Then she worked for a large grocery and their prepared foods. Ironically, she's back in a career in advertising and marketing now. But it was only after pursuing what she wanted to do as her passion. And I'm thrilled that she had the chance to do that. Is there a legacy that you hope to leave behind, Michelle? I'm very involved in the community in a number of different nonprofits and, and do a lot of work with them. I teach for an organization. I teach low-income families how to create nutritious meals on a limited budget for their families. I cook once a week for an organization that prepares nutritionally specific meals for medical patients that are critically ill. 
I work with kids in schools to learn to cook with what they grow in their school gardens. I decided somewhere along the line in the last 10 years that I wanted to devote a lot of my time in the philanthropic world, and I wanted to make a difference. And long after I'm gone, I hope people will look back and say, yeah, she did a lot of good things in the community. I think that's what matters. Nobody ever looks back and says, well, you know, how much money did you make or how many hours did you work? You want to leave a difference in your community, and that's the legacy I'd like to leave. Well, it sounds like you're establishing quite the strong legacy with all the philanthropic work that you've done. It's really fantastic to see. Let's look a little bit now at your inspiration from others. Have you been inspired by world leaders or cookbook authors or anyone else that's helped you along this new career path that you found for yourself? When I left the corporate world to get started in the the food world, I really had never spent much time networking out of the little clique of people I knew from my company. And so I made a very concerted effort that I was going to reach out and meet people in the community and learn and grow that way. And there have been a number of local Colorado leaders in the slow food world or in the organic community agriculture world that really have been very inspirational to me and helped me move my career along. And I I would say I've looked to them more for inspiration than I have any celebrity chef or world leader or somebody like that. Mm -hmm. But you do have a favorite quote from Winston Churchill. My husband's middle name was Winston. So Winston Churchill is a little special to our family to begin with. But the quote, never, never, never give up is one of my favorites. And I feel it applies to all aspects of our life, whether you're raising children, working, trying to lose weight, whatever you're doing, just keep trying is the bottom line. Is there a quote or a saying that you are known for amongst your friends and in community? Well, I tend to say it is what it is a lot, and it's partially to remind myself to just accept things as they are that I can't really change. We get all wrapped around the axle of things that are very difficult in the world that we're going to have no influence on. It can chew up all our creative energy, and I'd rather set those things aside, it is what it is, and focus on the things where I can make a difference. Michelle, you mentioned that you love reading and had a few books that you would like to share with the audience. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite books and in particular a food book or a compilation that you would like to recommend? Well, my favorite fiction book of all time is probably Bel Canto. And if you haven't read it, it's the kind of book that you will not want to put down. You don't want the story to end any more than the characters in the story want the story to end. And it was recently made into a movie, I think in 2018, that's fabulous. But the one inspirational food kind of thing that I read every year is the compilation by Holly Hughes called Food Writing. And it's been out for, I want to say, a dozen years or more. And it's everything from bloggers to people who've had something in the New York Times or a piece of a book or whatever. But it generally covers the topics that are important in the food world for that year and also inspires me just to see the writing style of other food writers because you can get stuck in your own style of writing and genre, and it helps me grow each year, I think. That sounds like a great resource. What's the name of that called? Food Writing by Holly Hughes is the editor who compiles it, and it's Food Writing 2017, 2018, 2019. Okay. That sounds like a great resource for our listeners. Thank you. Anybody who enjoys travel and food will enjoy reading that compilation of books. Michelle, do you have advice for people who are interested in getting in the food writing field? 
I took some online courses when I first was going to try to get into the food writing space. I was lucky because I sent a query in to a small little local free magazine who had just lost their food writer the day my query arrived. But I don't think it's so easy to break into that field. It's tough to make money in food writing ever since the world of the internet exploded with food blogs and food writing. The pay for food writers has become less and less and less. There are really two routes somebody can go who wants to be a food writer. You can be decide to be your own food writer and your own blog, and you can monetize that through advertising and other means on your blog, or you can try to get your stuff published, but it's tough to make a lot of money doing it that way. Do you have ideas for how people could differentiate themselves, or what have you seen where you think somebody could have more success in food writing? I do think being able to have photography along with your writing is an important thing for magazines or websites even. They don't have the budget to hire a professional photographer to go out and create the dish that you're giving them the recipe for or mm. go shoot the farm that you're writing about. So if you can go to a publication or to a website and say, I have this idea for a story about this farmer who's doing something special around raising these pigs. And I also have pictures of the recipes and I've shot a series of shots of the farmer out on his land. If you can provide the photography along with the writing, I think you're going to be much more attractive to the publication. That's a great tip. Thanks, Michelle. And also with the quality of cameras on phones now, it's easy to come up with fantastic photos all on your own. I did a short little piece once to guide people using their cell phones. But honestly, with the new phones, with the depth feature, the portrait settings and things like that, and the low light settings so that you can capture things in a restaurant, it's really very easy to take food photographs on your iPhone today. I don't even take my large camera with me when I travel anymore. I do everything from my phone. The biggest tip for anybody trying to use their phone is make sure you turn your flash off because that does not work well for food photography. No, it does not. (laughs) (laughs) You are obviously going to be doing some more traveling coming up in the near future. And you said that you're going to go back to Madrid to, to see some friends. What are your favorite dishes from your various voyages around the world? Some of your favorite food travel memories? I mentioned that bowl of tomato soup from my first trip to Germany. But looking back over 20 to 25 years of traveling internationally, I feel like I have this one dish of each location, and it it generally centers around just arriving in a place and having my first thing there and realizing that that's different than what I taught at home. So in Beijing, it was having this comforting broth-based soup for breakfast, which I never would have thought to have in the United States. In Paris, it was the first time I had a simple roast chicken with a salad with a Dijon vinaigrette on it. I remember the first time I had a pizza sitting on the piazza in Siena. So that first time into a place, the first dish I order off the menu and really remembering that, it stays with me forever. First impressions, that is so powerful. And I think it really speaks to the customer journey. We have these ideas, these expectations before we get somewhere of what it's going to be like, what the food's going to be like, the climate, the people, the landscape, whatever. And then we get there and your expectations are either met or they're not. And it sounds like in many cases, you maybe didn't have any expectations, but you were pleasantly surprised by the first thing you encountered. I think people who love to travel will get more out of that experience if they don't go into it with those preconceived ideas. I see it sometimes even in Italy. I take people, obviously, to the south of Italy, 
and they wonder why we're not making pesto down there. Well, pesto is from Liguria and the north is really the heart of pesto region. And so if you just show up in a place and say, you know what, what is really classic of this region? What's the most classic dish? And I'd like to try your version of that. You'll experience new things in a better way and get more out of it. Great advice. Is there a new country that you're excited to check out the food of? I'm on my way to India in a month, and I've never been to India at all. My daughter is going with me, and I've heard that's a challenging country if you've never been there, but she and I are both up for it. We're going to make our way around the northern part of India, traveling from Delhi to see the Taj Mahal, and then up north to Amritsar and Dharamshala. So I'm really excited about trying the food there and being in a completely new place that I've never been before. You're in for a delightful challenge. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Being open to the different types of food and specifically asking for the regional cuisine would be really fun for you, Michelle. The only tip I have is to ensure that when you're drinking the water, it's bottled and that they open it in front of you and try to avoid the ice. That's our plan. And other than that, we're going to eat our way through India. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. But according yeah. to what you were saying before, you're not going to do India. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know when I don't know when culturally that expression really surfaced, but I, I hear it in my millennial children all the time. I'll do the hamburger. We're gonna go do Italy. And although it may just be slang that's being used by a generation of kids, I think it really speaks to the mentality of travel or ordering a meal or anywhere you use that expression, it speaks to the mentality of this is something to be chucked off a list. And that just sort of grates me the wrong way. And so I, I, I try never to use that phrase and try to correct my kids if they do. I guess that's an American English colloquialism because I'm, I'm thinking about other languages and what they would say, and I'm not familiar with a similar kind of phrase in other languages, so maybe it's just American bad habits. <laughs> Yeah, it's just maybe lazy use of the language, possibly. Is there anything you'd like to share that we haven't touched upon yet, Michelle? So I began traveling on my own before my husband passed away. And now that he's gone, I'll obviously have a lot more of traveling solo. And it's one of those things that some people may or may not be comfortable with. But if you can adjust your mindset to do it, I think there's a lot to be gained by traveling solo. When I arrive in Italy all by myself, I usually go straight to a restaurant near my hotel, order a plate of carbonara and a glass of Prosecco, and just settle in to get myself at the mindset of that region. And doing that on my own without anybody to make conversation with, there's something kind of special about that. I'll be traveling to some other locations this year in Eastern Europe to a friend's winery outside of Budapest. And, and I'm really looking forward to doing that on my own. I think people should take the time to do it. Start small if you're not comfortable traveling alone and then branch out from there. I'm certainly seeing that trend with Traveling Spoon, more and more travelers who are traveling solo. And when I travel solo, it's a different kind of fun. You know, when you're with family and friends and you're traveling, you, you have a great time together. But when you're traveling solo, it pushes you to make new friends, to truly open your eyes and take in everything that's around you. And I find that I often end up meeting more people and exploring a lot many more things than I would have had I been with someone else. So it's certainly, it can be challenging, but it's also truly fun and a great way to explore a, a region. 
I also find that the larger group of friends that you're traveling with, the more your travel is going to be planned in advance because you're trying to make sure that, you know, all the parts come together. Whereas when you're alone, you can change plans on a dime. I once mm-hmm. spent four days in London alone while my daughter was off visiting a friend, and I did whatever I wanted. If I wanted to go to the movies at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, I did. If I wanted to skip dinner, I skipped it. If I wanted to eat at 11, I did. So that ability to do whatever you want and to make a split-second decision based on an opportunity that arises, maybe somebody invites you to come see something or do something, it's much easier when you're by yourself. So if you're open to that, you'll find some really unique experiences. Absolutely. It really gives you a chance to be a lot more spontaneous, which is something we we don't do enough of. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Michelle, looking ahead towards the rest of 2019, what, what are you looking forward to perhaps at the local level? Well, I'm very involved as we discussed in several philanthropies in the area. One of the nonprofits, Cooking Matters, hosts an annual fundraiser called Chefs Up Front. And it's really quite unique in that 20 or 30 of the best chefs in the Denver area come together to raise money for this organization to support families learning how to eat healthy foods on a budget. And I've been involved with Cooking Matters for a decade. I've been on their advisory board and I'm an ambassador for them speaking about the organization. So I'll be part of Chefs Up Front this year. And chefs cook tableside for tables of 10 a fabulous meal. It's a unique experience to be up close with one of the chefs of Denver that you may have only ever seen in the back of a kitchen. So it's really a great overall event and raises a lot of money to help the program. Sounds like a lot of fun. I'm sure it'll be quite enjoyable. Well, we uh, wish you all the best with, with your philanthropic plans in the Denver area and your travels for the year. It sounds like you have a lot of exciting things ahead of you this year. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. We empower local communities and businesses with the food and beverage tourism knowledge and tools needed to reach new consumers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, every year we shepherd a community of almost 100,000 professionals in over 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And you can learn more about us, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.